calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello, and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. In this episode, I'm excited to talk to a couple of heavy hitters in U.S. wealth management, Adrian Penta and Gary DeMoss. They'll be joining me today to talk about something that lies at the core of really every relationship in wealth management, and that's trust. Trust is also topical this week as CFA Institute has released its biennial trust report. Now, to recap quickly what that report is, uh, the CFA Institute conducts a massive survey every couple of years, covering both retail and institutional investors. They dig into those investors' perceptions of various industries, with a focus on really their perception of all industries, but with a focus on financial services in particular. They try to get under the skin of what decreases investor trust in our industry. We'll highlight some of the more interesting findings in the 2022 report during our conversation. So let's do that. Let's meet our guests. As mentioned, I'm joined today by Adrian Penta and Gary DeMoss. Adrian is the executive director of the Center for Women and Wealth at Brown Brothers Harriman, a family office within BBH she helped create, which focuses specifically on supporting women as they create and manage wealth. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. We also have Gary DeMoss with us today. Gary is Managing Director, Consulting Development and Delivery of Invesco Global Consulting. Gary's also an an author. He co-authored several books, including The Language of Trust, Selling Ideas in a World of Skeptics, a book which focuses on helping financial professionals thrive in an age of client skepticism. Good morning, Gary. You you both bring unique perspectives to this topic, so so why don't we just drive right in? My first question is is to both of you, really, and, and... it's about the sort of the one of the most striking conclusions that I found from reading the 2022 report, and that's that trust in financial services among both retail and institutional investors is up across the board. So I'd like to get each of your initial responses to this finding. Why do you think that is? It's a, it's a great question. I thought a lot about it in preparation for today, and wished that I had an answer that was specific to the financial services industry. But in looking at the survey, what struck me is that trust across all industries is up substantially from 2020 to 2021, which caused me to think back to what were we doing in 2020? And we were all reeling from the onset of COVID and this global pandemic, the likes of which most of us have never seen before. We were wiping off our groceries when we bought them home, and we were watching the news of these waves of viruses that were hitting nursing homes, assisted living facilities, and really in fear for you know the elderly and immune compromised among us. And so, you know, I think that this might be more a symptom of what was happening in the world, the place of fear and anxiety we were all coming from, since most of these industries are up 20 to 25 to 35 percent in terms of level of trust year over year. Yeah, you know, that's those are some great points, Adrian. And I would add this, you know, I think if you look at some of the longer term impacts in our industry that have resulted in these most recent numbers, first of all, good markets really help, right? Good markets help uh, in, in a big way for sure. But I also think that uh, the emphasis and the focus on really promoting a more consultative approach with clients 
uh, over the years is really kind of bearing fruit in these type of times right now. It's not just so much about being transactional. It's about taking a holistic look at a client's lives and understanding what that's really all about. And I think combined with that, the, the emphasis and focus on financial planning has helped as well. Things that we've been doing for years that when we get into a crisis period, such as what we're in now with the Ukraine, in a sense, uh, going on and certainly COVID, some of the things that we've been doing for many years are starting to really pay off from a trust perspective. So I think it's a, a combination of things uh, that really can lead to a, a good news, which is a higher level of trust for everyone. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because if you think about it, I mean, to Adrian's point, we're really dealing with some base effects here where you had a, you know, a very low level, a low ebb of trust back then. And then, you know, not only are we dealing, did we deal briefly with a, you know, a financial correction that was very terrifying and happening at the time of this survey two years ago. But so folks are dealing with, have been dealing with recovering from a financial as well as, you know, health concerns and terror through that time. So I can see uh, see how the efforts of financial advisors to be more consultative and work closely with their clients would, would really land well with them. Let's change gears a bit here. Adrian, I, I wanted to, to ask you specifically, as, as someone who spends much of your day thinking about how to support women specifically in creating and managing wealth, I'd be interested to hear your perspective on you know the differences between how and men and how men and women build trust. And, and maybe in that answer, you might include um, how they assess and process risk differently? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a great question. You know, we've seen a lot of data and a lot of surveys that say that women are inherently more risk adverse than men are in how they structure their portfolios and how they think about exposure to equities. There's a TIA Crafts survey from a couple of years ago that says women generally have 5% more cash in their portfolios, less exposure to equities. So the question is, are women really more risk adverse? I personally don't think that's true. I think that how women get confident and comfortable with taking on equity exposure or taking on any level of risk might look and feel different than men. And of course, these are massive generalizations. We can't generalize about all women just like we can't generalize about all men. But if we were to take something away from it, we know that women are, are, are focused on amassing information, becoming comfortable, becoming educated, uh, becoming comfortable in their relationships with their advisors before they take on a certain level of risk or, or move their level of risk up the spectrum. And I think that's the same thing with trust. I think that it takes a long time. It takes a lot of effort to build a relationship, to build that level of trust and understanding and knowledge about the client with a lot of our female clients. You can't just put your 10-year investment performance track record in front of them and say, this is why you should trust me. It's a lot more than that. So you have to listen deeply to learn who they are, what their objectives are, what their values are. We'll get to values later, I know. But it's that trust and relationship is built by listening deeply to learn about them, not to speak and to prove to them that you have the answer, that you have the expertise. So I think that it is a process, as you say, and they want to have that level of understanding, empathy, compassion, recognition between themselves and their advisors. Interesting. So, yeah, Mike, could I, could I add one thing to that, Mike, just to, to Adrian's comments? It's really interesting. You know, one of the things that we do is we study financial language. We've been studying financial language for 17 years. I think I counted up the other day. I've sat through 55, three to three and a half hour focus group sessions with men and women 
specifically targeting on language that we use in our industry. And every single time that we finish a survey, we get asked the question, what's the difference between men and women? What are you seeing? And I'm telling you, we do the splits. We've done splits in terms of men versus women on 20 different studies and all these different focus groups. And you know what the answer is? There's not much difference at all when it comes to words and when it comes to language. Now, to, to approach and some other things, certainly there, there may be some, some, some differences there. But when it comes to the language, to the financial language that we should be using, it's not about a customization towards men or women. It's a common language that really works for both. I think sometimes we overcomplicate the language, and I don't think that's helpful for men or helpful for women, right? And I think a lot of the things, and we can certainly talk more about this, a lot of the things we've done to serve women well actually apply to everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I'd agree, I'd agree with that. And I, you know, I work, I do a lot of writing in my role at our firm. And, uh, you know, it's the, the number one task each time is to try to separate that CFA charter holder training and experience from, you know, making things edible and, and digestible is the word I guess I'm looking for there. Because nobody likes to be talked down to or have jargon included in there. That's a really good way to, to lose people or to, you know, to, to lower their level of trust in you. One of the report's findings was that an alignment of interest among advisors and their clients is a key driver of trust. And this extends, of course, beyond just avoiding and disclosing conflicts of interest, but gets to the concept of really knowing what's important to your clients. And in the context you know, of the discussion about brand, it's obviously being authentic and being consistent. But when it comes down to it, we're, we're talking about alignment of or respect for the values of your clients here. And I was interested in something that, that you said to me once, Adrian, you said, there are no bad values. So I wonder if you could explain what you meant by that and, and how this fits into your approach to, to building trust with your clients. Thank you. Uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about values and we spend a lot of time with our clients talking about what their values are. My background is as an estate planning attorney. So I've cranked out thousands of estate plans. And what I know is that so often clients don't even remember why they made decisions that they make. So we start with the why now. We don't start with what the tax efficient plan or the best investment decision maybe is or when to give the kids the money. We start with What's important and why? Why are we doing the work? And we would start with why we do the work. And you know, this really came out of women and wealth. We knew when we started the Center for Women and Wealth in 2015 that so many women complained about their advisors not understanding them or their objectives. And that came out of survey out of a survey done by the Center for Talent Innovation called Harnessing the Power of the Purse, which is a great piece of work that still stands up today. And so we we created this values-based approach to helping clients make decisions about wealth. But values, your highest order, your core beliefs. So values are things like responsibility, community involvement, efficiency, spirituality, faith. Those are values. There's a difference between values and preferences. So if my value is political engagement, for example, and I, I'm down there voting for every single election that comes through, whether it's you know the solicitor general, I go and vote every time there's an opportunity, and I'm a Democrat, and you're a Republican, we share the same value, 
but maybe our preference is different. We believe in political engagement. So what I thought was interesting about the survey is I think that the question that was that was asked about values in the survey was, is it important for your advisor to, to share your political or religious views? Those are actually preferences, right? The fact that I'm a Buddhist and you're a church-going Catholic, but we both practice what uh, spirituality come in our, we have in our lives, right? Being faith-based person is the value. How we practice that faith is a preference. So the the survey I thought was fascinating. So there are no bad values to your point, right? That you know, being community minded, being responsible, being focused on education, being community whatever whatever your things are, right? Those are all positive. But how we enact them, preferences, sometimes you get into trouble there, right? What I think really came out in this this really interesting piece of work that you did was that people want their advisors to be like them. Right. If I'm a church going Catholic and I see you at church every Sunday, that makes me feel like we're similar. And so I think that's something that's endemic in our work that we do as financial advisors, that when we are like our clients, it's easier to relate to them. And that's sort of the kernel of why we created the Center for Women and Wealth, because whenever we are serving a diverse clientele, we actually just have to work harder to make sure that we know what they want, we know what their values are, we know what their preferences are, and we're intentional about asking them how they want to be served. So, so what does that translate into then in, in terms of practical portfolio building? Is this, is this building you know, specific portfolios for them to match those values? Or, or how does that manifest itself in the, in the service that they get? You know, I think it's bigger than that. I think that, yes, there can be some investment conversations that derive from values, but I think it's all decision-making. Or how do you want me to be in contact with you? What type of relationship should we, do you want to have with me? If I send you an email and I don't hear back from you, what do you want me to do next? Should I assume that you don't want to hear from me? Should I assume that you're uninterested? Or should I assume you're having a really busy week and I should reach out to somebody in your office? You know, so I think that the intentionality about how we serve clients and how we integrate their values into the work that we do extends to all aspects of the relationship. And it's not only investment focused. So sticking with the communications theme and really looping back a little bit, Gary, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about, you know, as someone who studied communications for the last 15 years, and you touched a bit on sort of some tactics that advisors can use to build trust with, with the right language there. I was wondering if there's anything more you wanted to add about that. And I'd love for you to specifically touch on uh, disclosure of fees and other costs as a driver of trust. Yeah, well, let me let me answer that in a two-part answer. First of all, when, when it comes to communication, this is, this is really what we've learned. And we've been talking about this forever, that there's really four universal principles that we need to think about as communicators in our industry, in financial services, right? This is what we've found that, that people like, people want. We, we measure the way that we do this. We measure people's emotional responses to words. Okay, how they respond, how do they feel about the language that we are using? And so I would sum it up like this. Principle number one that we talk about is people are looking for positive messages. They're looking for messages that are hopeful. And the flip side of that is what they're not looking for is a fear-based approach to selling, to speaking about investments. Fear-based is completely out. And they want positive messages about the investments that we're recommending. So number one, be positive. Number two is be plausible. Be believable in the benefits that you're talking about to your clients. And I'll give you an example of this. Uh, we have tested this, uh, this phrase like in retirement, which is more important to you, financial security 
or financial freedom. And if I was to ask the, the audience what, what they would think, um, I, many times we get, oh, financial freedom, financial freedom exists, you see it in ads, et cetera, et cetera. And the fact of the matter, financial freedom doesn't win at all. Uh, financial freedom finishes at last. What really wins is financial security. That's much more believable. People are saying, seriously, you're, you're saying that I can be financially free to do whatever I want to do. They don't believe it. Uh, but they do believe that you can provide financial security for them. And that's really important because if I use the, some of these phrases, your trust, your trust meter starts to plummet. And by the way, what's really interesting, pre 9-11, the answers and the responses to those words were exactly the opposite. If back then in the go-go days, it was all about financial freedom. Oh, I can do this and I can do that. That rapidly changed at 9-11. And uh, it's exactly the opposite. So we, we need to really be careful about what benefits we're talking about. That, And we always, we always say this. It's not what you say that matters, but what really matters is what are people hearing when we are speaking the language that we're so used to speaking to? So it's not only being positive, it's being plausible, but it's being, it, being plain English. Speak to me in language that I understand. And this is really all about the jargon uh, that we use in our industry. And we, we all know it. And and and. And this is, this is really the, the specific challenge for the financial advisor is how do I take a, a complicated concept and make it simple and easy to understand? And I'll, I'll, go, I'll go to an example, uh, since you mentioned this, Mike, about fees, all right? This is really, this is really an interesting study that we did several years ago on what do clients want from their advisors in terms of demonstrating value, not their values. I'm going I'm I'm to differentiate that. What do they want? What do they want from you? And they want three things. Number one is they want, number, number one is this, help me, I wanna make sure that I'm being smart with my money. I wanna make sure that when I make an investment that I'm getting my money's worth, that there's value in that investment to me. And part of that is the way we talk about our fees. We've tested the word fee. And if I was to ask just our small group here on this podcast, how do you think the word fee tested with our clients? I mean, it's horrible. It has never tested well. And there's a reason for that because culturally, we are impacted by this word fee everywhere we go. I, I, I've got in front of me a receipt from a taxi cab uh, ride that I took from LaGuardia to, to Midtown last, uh, just last week. And I got my receipt right here. And after the actual rate was listed, there were several different fees that, that were addition. There's a congestion uh, surcharge. Uh, from my taxi, $2.50. Now there's a new airport fee, there's a state surcharge, and then there's an improvement surcharge. So they're all trying to figure out ways to disguise the word fee, because when people see that, because what people really dislike from our research, anything that is unexplained and, and undisclosed is an absolute trust killer. And interestingly, when we did our focus group work, when we replaced the word fee with the word costs, let's talk about the costs that are associated with this. Because first of all, advisors need to feel and be able to have confident conversations about what they charge because they deserve to. I mean, this is they, they do a lot to earn those fees, so to speak. But when we use the word costs, our focus group said, oh, we totally get that. Oh, I see. We know there's costs associated with that. But anyway, the whole idea that when you use that word fee, uh, you're, you're, you're setting yourself up in a very bad place. So positive, plausible, 
plain English. And the last thing is make your messaging seem like it's personal, that it's about me, that it's just not about a group of your clients, but I want to feel like you're talking to me specifically. And especially when it comes to technology, because when it comes to technology, we don't have a voice there, but we use the written language, right? And so we have to be thinking about these principles, even when we're employing technology around positive, plausible, you know, making sure that we're we're, we're not using the, the jargon with plain English and that we're making this message seem like it's coming to me, not one of the thousands that are a part of my organization or, or whatever it may be. But those are the four universal principles, Mike, that we've been talking about for almost 17 years now that we need to think of. Use as a filter anytime you're going to develop a website, your marketing materials, your literature, whatever it may be. How am I doing in those four specific areas? Terrific. Thanks for that, uh, that thorough rundown, Gary. That uh, gives us a great map for, for approaching communications, which are, are so important. I wanted to switch gears here just a little bit and talk about technology, because that is another big theme in the report this year. And yet another sign of the times, we see from the report that access to a human with experience and advice is for the first time valued less, if you can believe it, than having access to the latest technology. Think about that. It was really surprising to me. Just to spell out what the specific question was, respondents were asked to look out three years and then choose between having a person to help navigate what is best for me and execute on my investment strategy and having access to the latest technology platforms and tools to execute my investment strategy. And in this case, the robots won 56% to 44%. So I'm curious, Adrian, does this surprise you at all? And and in your response, maybe you could chat about, you know, how you may have seen tech be used to help build trust among clients at, at BBH. I think technology is becoming table stakes, to use a word that's already been mentioned. You know, I think technology is absolutely imperative. And, you know, every new business we see now is tech enabled in some way. And I think our businesses are all technology enabled as well. And there's an app for everything, right? I can't order a salad for lunch without having the app on my phone. So to make important decisions and to understand what's happening with your money, of course, you need to have something that's technology enabled. I think that where it helps really build relationship is that it provides transparency and validation to our clients. And we live in a world of constant fraud, of online scams, of having to replace our credit cards every other month because there's been fraud or hacking. You know, with our sort of public imagination right now, I think, is really wrapped up and uh, fascinated by impersonators and fraudsters, right? You think about the Tinder Swiddler and Reinventing Anna and all these shows that we're watching right now. It's really become a part of our everyday life. We teach, I have small children, right? We teach our kids about being cautious about social media and people online are not who they think you think they are and misrepresenting and personal information, right? So everything we do needs authentication, right? You enter your Google password, then you have to go check it 16 other places in order for it to be validated that it's really you. So I think having that technology at your fingertips, you know where your money is and you know what it's invested in and you see your transaction history and you see your performance history and you see the fees that you're being charged. So having that level of transparency, I think is important to all clients now. 
and I, I don't I don't think that's going away. I think we're just going to become more and more technology dependent as time goes on. If my middle age or middle school age and elementary school age kids are any indication of that, but you know, I think where we really differentiate and can build trust on top of that is with people and with good service and with empathy. And I think that also came out in your survey when you look at who has trust in the financial services industry, those with an advisor versus without an advisor, far and away, people who have an advisor, a person in their lives who helps them with financial decision-making, 69% of them have trust in the in the financial services industry, whereas 47% without an advisor do. And I think that comes out too in the data around percentage of investors who trust their advisor. It goes up substantially with the amount of assets or net worth that they have invested. And I think that in those categories, people who have a million dollars or more or five or $10 million or more, it's a much more high touch, people-centric experience that they're having. So I think technology is important. You have to have it. But I think where you can really build substantial trust and differentiate your relationship with your advisor or with your client is when you have that empathetic personal relationship. And, and of course, the, the flip side of table stakes is you know if you have clients are have a higher expectation around what those table stakes are with the delivery of access to their their balances or their transactions uh, or your latest thinking around it providers that don't have that technology platform available it, you know i imagine it would be a, a strike against right if you if you can't provide that um, particularly and one of the other findings that from the report was uh, perhaps not an unsurprising one which is that you know the younger generations the millennials this is they have they actually have higher trust in, in financial services than others, but they also, as, as you can imagine, have a you know higher buy-in around technology and the use of technology to do these things. Yeah, if I could add one thing to what Adrian was saying uh, in terms of this combination of technology and human impact. And, you know, my advisor just left his firm and went to another firm, a very well-recognized firm, right? Very well-recognized and you know, I was fine with it. No, no big deal. This, you know, it's going to a great company. And yet to, to, to my great disappointment, the technology support and offer from this new firm was so much less impressive and operational than where I was before, not only in terms of look and feel and navigation, et cetera, but in terms of transferring, you know, certain positions over, et cetera, it was honestly, it was a nightmare. But what, what, what has kept me is the human and personal relationship that I have with my advisor. We'll, we'll, we will get through this technology bump here, but I expect that. And I think it, people do expect that. They need it. They want that. But it's that combination with the human element that really kind of maybe gets you through the rough spots. Let's put it like that. So it is a combination of both for sure. And I would certainly agree that, that the trend is going to be uh, as, as millennials, as they grow into their, their 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, it's just going to be something of the future that we're going to have to deal with. Having six children and seeing all those iPhones and iPads and all those kind of things, they're all grown up now, but they're still on their phones and their iPads. So it's not going away. <laughs> You you look remarkably good for for a man with uh, with six children, Gary. You got a lot more hair than I do, so well done. Well, we we appreciate that. Every day's every day's a new challenge. Let's put it like that. So I, I wanted to stay on tech for a second here. Uh, talk about virtual meetings, which of course has been a necessity these last couple of years. 
But as we all start to go back into the office, portfolio managers and advisors, they really have to weigh the convenience of Zoom against you know missing that personal connection of in-person. And I was, I was really struck by some of the stats in this report because I, I assumed that you know, that clients would, would value Zoom. But I was really surprised if, you know, if you, if you go and look at it, and we'll give you the coordinates later to go find this report, but Exhibit 17 has all the stats around, you know, in which, in, in each of these situations, which mode of communication would you prefer your financial advisor to use with you? And between in-person meeting, email chat, and phone call, all of those rated higher than a video call. So people are really burnt out on Zoom. So I'm curious, as we look and stare down this this return to return to the office, how do you think advisors should approach this decision? And maybe I'll go to Gary with you on this. And and how do how do you see this? How do you see your choices here, really? Because it is a choice about how you manage this. Uh, how do you see that helping to build trust back up again among, say, you know, maybe clients you've onboarded since the pandemic hit and you've never actually met face to face? Yeah, no, this is is going to be fascinating to watch this transition back into into what we would call normal. I don't know what normal is anymore, but uh, I I know myself in in speaking at conferences, you know, know, obviously for two years, we weren't speaking anywhere. And this year I've been back to, I've I've started, I'm seeing the trend backwards, starting to see, you know, advisors come back and in-person meetings happen. And I can't begin to tell you just being at these conferences and speaking. I did a, I did a breakout. I did a breakout at a meeting on a Friday afternoon. It was a three-day conference. Okay. And our slot was the hour before the final speaker on a Friday. And you know where everybody's at, right? Everybody's headed to the airport, right? On that thing. And I'm looking, it was a huge conference. And I'm thinking we're in this big breakout session. I'm going, we'll be lucky to have 50 people here. They're like all gone. And I'm sitting there, and by the by the time our, our session started, we had 825 people in our breakout. Hmm. In our breakout on a Friday. And that was just a small anecdotal story that shows the desire for people that want to get together and be with each other. And I, I think there's going to be an initial rush of all of this. And I've seen it not just in this one. I've seen it everywhere. You can't get people to leave dinners. You can't. I mean, it's really an interesting phenomena. However, however, I believe that people are going to when this settles, they're going to say, you know, there is an element that really makes sense to do this virtually. I don't need to. I don't need to fly to Phoenix or do this or that or whatever it may be. And I think it's really important that advisors prepare themselves for a combination, a hybrid. I have no idea what the mix is going to be. Is it 60-40, 70-30, 80-20? I don't know what that's going to be. But that they be prepared for that virtual world because it is important. And the biggest thing that they're missing in the virtual world is what we call small talk. They're missing the small talk. They're missing that 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 first part of the in-person meeting where you get together and you share, you talk a little bit here, a little bit about that. How you doing? What's going? You know, you miss that small talk piece, and and it's easy for us when we when we continue these Zoom meetings to think I got a thirty-minute time slot. I got to start. I got to get to it. I got to get right to the business aspect of it, and you miss the small talk. We are encouraging people. It's okay to have small talk. It really, really is. It's a part of the relationship that you can't exclude anymore. You've got to include this. And we, we teach different ways in which you know, advisors can set their background professionally so that it generates conversation. And your, does your background tell a story about you? Because guess what? That's what they're seeing. They look at you, but they look into your background. And 
We also talk about how can you learn things and create small talk with the backgrounds that you see into your client, into their clients' homes, like you've never been before. So I think there's some real opportunity here. And when it does become virtual, but we can't just say, oh, I'm going to do all these impersonal meetings and I'm just going to run to a virtual meeting and think it's the same thing that I've got going in person. There are absolute differences in ways that you do these types of meetings and you need to be aware of to make sure that we create that small talk, that that really critical relationship side of that of that conversation. And I think that's exactly the distinction, Gary. I think that in person is about relationship building and we're together we're, we're learning about each other. We see each other's body language. We're building relationship. We're building trust, <laughs> the topic of the day. And I don't think we need to do any more, though, information exchange in person, right? right? I'm going to give you the annual review and you can ask questions. Like, we can do that on Zoom, <laughs> right? If exactly. I'm going to go see you as a speaker, I can actually do that on Zoom. If it's a breakout session where I'm going to interact with other people, I want to be in the room for that. Right, we do a lot of convening within the Center for Women and Wealth of our, our female clients and other women who are uh, in our ecosystem. And we're not gonna bring them together now just to hear something. We know that the most powerful thing we can do is to bring them together to be together and yeah. to relate to each yeah. other and to engage. And so that's how you get people in the room now, I think, is to provide them a meaningful opportunity to have rapport, to build a relationship, to, to be with each other versus just delivering something to them because we know that that's much more easily, less expensively, way less travel, fewer hours in LaGuardia Airport, right? If you can do that on Zoom. Okay, for our, for our final question here, I'm gonna ask you to hop in a time machine. But what was your first job in the industry? And if you could go back and take yourself for coffee on your first day, what key piece of advice would you offer yourself? Adrian, why don't you start us off? So my piece of advice probably to anybody in a highly technical industry like that is to pick your head up, right? It's a big world. It's a big industry. There's a lot of people to meet. There's a lot to understand that's outside of your current, current you know, small view when you're, you're sitting in your office with your head down and to invest in your network and building a network and building a personal brand. Personal brand is something we actually talk a lot about at Brown Brothers with, with our younger professionals. And your network, your personal brand, it goes wherever you go and it pays dividends for your entire life. So that would probably be my one piece of advice. Yeah, first of all, this is really a great question. <laughs> of all the questions that you've asked, it's kind of an interesting one to kind of get a little reflective on it. But I would think about this one thing, advice and that is to keep your, your eye on the end goal of what you actually do in financial services. What, what I mean by that is it's not just about selling a product or selling a fund or putting together a plan or whatever it may be. But in the end, the end goal is that you really, really are truly helping people make smart decisions. And I think it's important to keep your eye on the long-term goal it's not just about asset allocation and the plant. Those are all important. Don't get me wrong. But it's what they lead to. And they lead to really serving people well. If you find that advisor who does all the proper things along the way, life can end in a retirement that is a comfortable retirement for people. So kind of more take the long-term approach in terms of what actually our industry is truly designed to do to help people in the end have that, that retirement that they want that's achievable and it's most comfortable for them. 
Thank you both for that. I really want to give a big thanks to both of our guests today, Adrian Penta from Brown Brother Harriman's Center for Women and Wealth, and Gary DeMoss, author and consultant with Invesco Global Consulting. Thank you both so much for giving your time today. It has been a real pleasure chatting with you. For those of you listening out there, if you're interested in reading the CFA Institute's Investor Trust Study, be sure to head to trust.cfainstitute.org or just do what I did and Google CFA Institute Trust. And that's a wrap. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this has been Guiding Assets. <music>